Colossians. There you go. If you were with us last week, uh, we began our journey through Colossians. If you ask us how long it's going to take, we don't know. We know it's going to be about 10 or 11 weeks in chapter 1, and we're just going to, uh, like everything we do, we're just going to take it a week at a time uh, because we have nowhere to go, right? And so we're just going to be slow and faithful through this wonderful book, and we're going to talk about how wonderful it is this morning. So special thanks to Evan last week as he began uh, our time in Colossians and uh, did a great job in giving us some background and the backdrop of this letter uh, written by Paul, authored by the Holy Spirit to the church at Colossae, as he pointed out about uh, a, the distance from Shreveport from West Monroe, uh, from, um, oh goodness, Evan, my mind just went blank, from Col- uh, Colossae to Ephesus, right? Where'd Evan go? There he is, right there. So uh, some say 80, some say about 100 miles. And so, uh, but anyway, so this is Colossians. And uh, Evan last week covered uh, the first couple of verses. This morning, I'll take us from uh, verse 3 down to about halfway through verse 5. And uh, we'll see, uh, see what the Lord has in store for us this morning. Let's read our text this morning, then we'll pray and we'll begin. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you already for what has happened here, Lord, in this place. We've been able to worship you through through song, through being together. Thank you now, Lord, that we can worship you through opening your word and being under the preaching and the authority of your word. And so now, Lord, would you would you grab our mind's attention? Would you grab our heart's affection? And Lord, by your spirit, would you lead us through this text this morning to ultimately see Christ? As is clearly the point of this text and the point of this very book. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So still this morning, as we continue in Colossians, uh, last week as uh, Evan started the greeting, we're still kind of in this introduction, if you will. And so we're not going to exhaust uh, all of these topics that we're going to deal with, uh, thankfulness and prayer, faith, love, and hope. Uh, But these are things that Paul is going to mention, uh, and then he's going to deal with in deeper ways uh, throughout the book of Colossians. But we're going to kind of tip our toe in there, if you will, uh, this morning, just as Paul does. But he will expand on these themes and topics throughout the letter. So we're just going to jump into verse 3 and just kind of start and kind of unpack it like we often do uh, as we go through uh, books of the Bible verse by verse. And so in verse 3 when he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. There is so much happening just in these couple of verses. Um, And we're going to kind of break these things down to kind of help us walk through this. But what we see in verse two, verse 3 here is we see that Paul is thankful for the people of God. The first thing we see, kind of two main points this morning, the first of which is he is thankful for the people of God. Paul is thankful for the people of God. Now you've got to remember where Paul is writing this letter from. He's not writing from the comfort of his office at First Baptist Colossae, right? He's not writing from some remote office somewhere in Asia Minor. He is writing from the comfort of his prison cell. And we can only imagine how, comfort, how comfortable an ancient Near East prison cell was and how comfortable they made him. 
uh, many of his letters are written from the Roman prison, and this is no exception. So he is writing from prison, uh, from Rome, to this church in Colossae. Um, and now he is thankful. So as he's writing this letter, he doesn't, as we don't see in any of his letters, he doesn't turn the attention towards himself and ultimately doesn't even really turn the attention towards the people. He turns the attention towards Christ and towards the Lord. But he does so through his gratitude, to his thankfulness for the people of God. And so he starts off with his thankfulness for God's people. And so what could possibly possess Paul here, you know, kind of, for lack of better words, rotting in this Roman jail cell to be thankful for the people of God? Because this, this, is, a, this is not his home church. This is not the church that has sent Colossae out. This is a church that, believe it or not, Paul has never, as far as we know, has never been to face to face. We'll see this throughout the Colossians letter that he's never met these people. These are not his people. They sit in his fam. They sit in the church that he has been to in person. But even as we see in this verse this morning, he has heard of these things, but yet it brings him great joy to hear of some things from this particular congregation. So he's never met these people, but yet great joy is filling his heart and even his very soul by hearing the testimony of this church at Colossae. And so what spurs on this, this thankfulness in Paul? And this isn't just the church at Colossae. I'm just going to cite you a few verses here. We don't have to turn to these for the sake of time. But we see this theme in Paul that he is thankful for God's people. If you go to Romans chapter 1, verse 8, I'm going to read these kind of quick. But he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. To the church of Corinthians in chapter 1 verse 4, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which is given you in Christ Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before God on your account? Ephesians, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Similar to Colossians, we see in Philippians, 2 Timothy, Philemon, and 2 Thessalonians. And even Acts, which he didn't write, if you remember, Luke wrote the book of Acts. Even Luke mentions how much, how much Paul is thankful. On seeing the brothers, Paul thanked God and took courage. So by his very character, Paul is constantly thankful for the people of God. He's thankful. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. He is thankful for God's people. Likewise, we should be thankful for God's people. And as Paul opens this letter for Colossians, it's very clear that he's thankful for God's people. He's thankful for the bride of Christ. He's thankful for the church, even this church that he has yet to meet and likely will never meet in person. For our local congregation, we should be thankful. For believers that we work with, we should be thankful. For believers in our family, because not all of our families are believers and born again and have the Holy Spirit of God inside of them. For believers in our life that we call friends. For believers around the world that we will never meet. Like Paul, we should be thankful. We should be thankful for the church of Christ. We should be thankful for the bride of Christ. And even more thankful for the bride of Christ that the Lord allows us to know and do life with, for a phrase that we use often here at North Hills. 
He is thankful for God's people. They bring him not just a superficial joy, but bring him a legitimate, genuine joy. And you can it's almost tangible in his jail cell there. He is thankful for the people of God. And we likewise should be thankful for God's people. Another thing to note from moving on from this section of the verse is his use of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is a man of many words, but his words are never wasted. Not because he's a great author, which he is, but because the author of Scripture, the author of his 13 letters that he writes, these various churches and these pastors are, are, are authored by the Holy Spirit. And so we know that every word that proceeds from the Lord, the Word of God, is God's Word. It's God's Word Himself. And so we know these words, although He is wordy, are intentional and should be important. And so He says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for us as regular readers of the Bible, this can just kind of become common speak for us, right? We say, I mean, how many, way, how many different ways do we say Jesus we say Jesus, we say Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our Lord Christ Jesus. We can say it in all kinds of different ways, the Son of God, the Messiah. And we can say all of in these different ways, and sometimes we may or may not have specific meanings in regarding to how we are addressing Christ. But for Paul and his readers, this meant something when he said, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Paul does not always reference Christ like this in his introduction. Now, this is not necessarily unique to his letters. And you can look at his many different letters, the 13 that he's written. And roughly about half of them have a very similar introduction. About half do not. He oftentimes, after his greeting that we saw in the first couple of verses, he will thank God and not specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is fitting for this letter to the Colossians due to the theme of this letter. Now, we don't just apply themes to these letters and books of the Bible just to be academic. We don't just do this because, oh, let's just be, let's act spiritual. Let's say, here's the theme of the letter. But, be, but because the authorship of the Holy Spirit, He's given us these rich letters that we can study and that we can know and that teach us incredible things about the Lord. And so Colossians, like all books of the Bible, have themes. And the theme of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ. It's the supremacy of Christ. It is all about Jesus. Now I know what you're thinking. If you come here to North Hills often, like, yeah, yeah, John, we heard it. We hear it all the time. Every book of the Bible is about Jesus. It's always about the gospel, whether in New Testament, Old Testament, Everything's about Jesus. Yes, everything's about Jesus. Everything has the gospel thread that runs through it. All 66 books of the Bible. Absolutely. But Colossians, many would say, is the most upward book of the Bible. And what that means is, it is the book of the Bible that, that exalts Christ the most specifically. I was getting my hair did yesterday. Getting my hair cut. And my barber, he loves to talk more than me. It's amazing. And he was asking me, I asked what I was preaching on, and we talked about Colossians and stuff, and he said, ask me what Colossians is about. And I told him, it's similar to what I just told you about, about Christ. And I said, and I'm thankful that I get to preach through Colossians, because it's about Christ. We always preach Christ, and we always magnify Jesus. But when you go through Colossians, 
Oh, I can't wait to get to verse 15, the preeminence of Christ. Can't wait to get to chapter 2 when it talks about the glory of Jesus. We get to just preach the riches and the treasure of Jesus. I'm not going to say we like the New Testament better than the Old Testament. Can't say that because I don't believe that at all. All scripture is good. All scripture is good for teaching, correcting, and being Christ isn't all of it. But the theme of Colossians is Christ, that He is our treasure and our great joy. And Colossians is being the most upward book in the Bible that Paul, through the Holy Spirit, spends his time specifically exalting Christ. And so it's an exciting, it's an exciting theme. And so when he says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is preparing us for something. He is preparing his reader for something. Although we hear this often, his readers didn't hear this as much. They were receiving this letter from the apostle. They heard this in, in a different way than we hear it. And they were, they were preparing, as they were reading this letter, this, this supremacy of Jesus. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. I am very excited about our time in Colossians. And then Paul ends verse 3 there. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. When we pray for you. So not only is he thankful for God's people, but secondly, he prays for God's people. Paul prays for God's people. His regular thankfulness for the Colossians comes when he prays for them which seems to be often. How often? Well, he says always. Because we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So there is this, there's this clear understanding here that there is this regular sense in which we, we being at least at minimum, he and Timothy, as we see there in the first couple of verses, Paul and Apostle Jesus Christ, the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, so Paul and Timothy together here, and we know that uh, Epaphras is included in this conversation as he is set there uh, and, and leading the, the church of Colossae. But as Paul and Timothy, they're regularly praying for the people in the congregation at Colossae, regularly. So not only is he thankful for God's people, but he prays for God's people. His regular thankfulness for the Colossians comes when he prays for them. And although Paul is not an elder at the, at the Colossian church, he is teaching others how to pastor and how to pastor well and how to elder and how to lead in the local church and how to lead the bride of Christ. Here he models a Timothy. And we see that Timothy is a young elder and a young pastor and he's teaching Timothy how to lead in the local church. He's teaching Epaphras how to lead in the local church. He's teaching these other Men who will read this letter, not just in the, in the first century whenever it's written, but even today, how to lead in the local church. It is through prayer. Not only are we thankful for God's people, but we are called to pray for God's people. An elder can and should do many things, but he must first and foremost be devoted to two things, to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That's found in Acts chapter 6. Those are the two things that an elder should be committed to. To prayer and to the ministry of the word. It's so easy for pastors to get caught up busying themselves with other good things that they neglect the primary calling to which the Lord has called them as under shepherds of Christ's church. We need to be 
committed, devoted, as Acts 6-4 says. It says, let us be devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. We're not exactly, um, we're not sure what always praying looked like for Paul, but we know that it was regular, faithful, and fervent prayer. And we see that in Paul's letters of what always praying looks like. Because we're always thankful through prayer. It was this, this aspect of his life that he was thinking about the people of God. He was thinking about the bride of Christ. He was thinking about this congregation. That, and for him as an apostle, it wasn't just a congregation. He was thinking about many congregations that the Lord had allowed him to plant and lead and kind of sprout throughout all the known world at that time. That he was setting leaders up and elders and, and, and going throughout the known world. And it was it's teaching men like Timothy and Epaphras and many others of how to pastor well. And part of that is to not just to be thankful for God's people, but to pray for God's people. Elders should be about praying for the church, being committed to the ministry of the word. And likewise, I'd encourage you, church, to pray for your elders. As we say often, we need your prayers and you need the practice. Pray for your elders. The elders will pray for you that we would be faithful to our call to regularly, faithfully, and fervently pray for this congregation. Because that is what we all need is to be bathed in prayer, to be brought before the throne of God on a regular basis. And finally, we get to, get to the heart of our text this morning. It says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you in the verse 4, Since we heard... So this is what he's thankful for as he's praying. It says as he's praying in his jail cell, this is what comes to his mind and heart and soul. He's heard something. He hasn't met him face to face, but he's heard. He's heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints. So what is Paul so thankful about? Two specific things that he is thankful about for this church and Colossae, the faith and the love of Colossians. So number one, what's he thankful for? The Colossians were known for their faith. The Colossians were known for their faith. Now, it's interesting to me that scholars get kind of hung up on this, um, on exactly what it meant by, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Was it the specific act of they were placing their faith in the person of Jesus Christ, thus they were being saved? Or was it this identity of the Christian faith that transformed their lives and they were committing their life, the totality of their life, to Christ? And I would submit to you both of them. I would submit to you, you can't have one and not the other. Faith is not only a once-in-time salvation, but a transformation of our very lives. I asked uh, George about 30 seconds before the service started, hey, I meant to ask you, can I use you as an illustration? I've learned over the years it's better to ask people if you can use them as an illustration. Unless they live with you, then they don't get that privilege. And so George said, sure. I said, you want me to tell you what it is or you trust me? He said, I trust you. I said, you'll learn better, George. 
And so what, what is the difference of these two things? And so I, I thought about George as, I, as I'm working through this text. And, and George is one who this year has placed his faith in Jesus Christ, right? So he is one who has, has said, because of the grace of God. And he would tell you, it is not George that's done it, right? It is God who has reached down from heaven by his grace and has broken his heart and saved him. And not only is it this once-in-time thing where God has saved him, but now his whole life has been transformed. Right, George? Absolutely. And you have conversations with George. He's rethinking his whole life. He's rethinking every relationship in his life. He's rethinking all the activities in his life. And if you're someone who claims to know the Lord, and you're not rethinking your life, if the Lord is not convicting you of the things in your life, are both even true? And says, Paul has heard of his church in Colossae. And he has heard of their faith. He has heard that there's this group of people who have looked to Christ, who have been saved, and they've been transformed by the gospel. And there's this group of people who don't just say, yeah, we, we follow Jesus now, and not, not the law anymore, or not this over here, but we're not just following Jesus, but their very lives reflect it. One scholar says it very well, and just figured it's best just to read his, his words, so don't butcher it. The Colossians had received the word of truth, the gospel, and were trusting exclusively in the person and work of Christ for salvation. As a result, their lives had been transformed. But Paul's prayer of gratitude did not congratulate and celebrate the Colossians. It directed praise and thanksgiving to God. In the same way, we should rejoice over the gift of our salvation through faith, giving thanks to the Lord for His indescribable gift in Christ. In addition, this prayer also encourages us to maintain a vibrant faith that continues to live for Christ in submission to His Lordship. And I love that reminder. Paul's not saying, good job, Colossians. We don't say, good job, George. We say, thank the Lord for what Christ has done in his life. We look at believers in our life. We look at our children, look at our spouses, look at our own life. We look at those who work with us and we praise God for what he's done in their life. Because it's not the work of an individual. It's the work of Christ in their life that leads them to repentance, to salvation, and to a transformed life. And Paul is so thankful. And when he prays, the Lord brings these Colossians to his mind. And they were known for their faith. News of this, this transformed congregation reaches Paul in prison. And you can only imagine the joy this brought the apostle. That the work that is happening, the seeds that are being planted throughout um, Asia are growing as he says he's planting seeds and apollos is watering but god is growing god is bringing the growth he could see the power of god at work while he was locked up in prison all glory goes to god may we too desire to live lives that are pleasing and are used by the lord may we live as those who are to be found faithful because we serve a faithful Savior. So the Colossians were known for their faith. And secondly, the Colossians were known for their love for one another. Now it's only been a couple weeks for we, since we've even talked about this topic, but the Lord brings us back to it, so we're going to talk about it again. 
which means the Lord says North Hills needs to hear it again. But the love that we have for one another, because the Colossians were known for their love for one another. It says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints. Hunter and I had the chance last week to go to a Saints game. I didn't actually look at the number. I think the stadium holds 97,000. thousand. There was close to it. It's a sold-out game. And there was a lot of love for the Saints. Not much love for the Seahawks. There was about 200 Seahawks fans in there, and my son was one of 200. But this is not the love of the Saints that it's talking about. This is love for the genuine Saints of the Lord. These are the Saints who never lose in the grand scheme of things, who may at times suffer loss, but ultimately are always victorious because of Christ. And he hears, Paul hears in his jail cell of Rome of this church that is not just being found faithful, who are not just turning to Christ, or their lives are not just being transformed by the gospel, but they are loving one another. And love is the litmus test of true believers. Let me say it again, church. Love is the litmus test of true believers. It is not how we serve although we are called to serve one another and that is very important it is not our theology although a right understanding of god is essential for a growing believer the sign of a true believer is not in what we do or in how we think it's in how we love you say well john that just doesn't sound right that sounds very whatever of you i'm glad you called me out on it go with me to the book of john John chapter 13. Let's look at he who knows a thing or two about love. John chapter 13. This new commandment that Christ gives us. Starting in verse 31, John 13. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is a litmus test right there of disciples, of how we love God's people, of how we love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And let's look how another John wrote this. 1 John uh, chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse Sorry, 7. I'm still not sure about that. Well, isn't that awkward? <laughs> Didn't charge it last night. It's about to die anyway. So. 1 John chapter 4. Read a little chunk of this. We'll start in verse 7 because it's just such a, such a wonderful passage. You hear this phrase often, God is love, and your, your subtitle may say that in your Bible, God is love, and that is such a, a butchered uh, phrase because it's totally misunderstood. God is love. When you understand love and you understand the biblical, uh, the biblical God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
But in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love we love because he first loved us if anyone says i love god and hate and hates his brother he is a liar for he does not love his brother whom for who does not love his brother whom he has not, whom he has, goodness, I don't need glasses, I guess, now. For he does not, for he who does not love his brother whom he has, has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I know it's a lengthy text, but I want us to see the rich beauty and the truth of what Paul understood whenever he received this report of the love that the Colossians had for one another. It was no small thing. It was no small matter whenever he understood that they loved one another. Not only did they have faith in Christ and were living out that faith and were transformed by that faith, but the litmus test of their love for Christ was found in how they loved one another and how they loved one another well. So this news of how they loved one another had reached Paul. And again, imagine the joy that it brought him writing this letter. Because if you know much about Paul's letters, not all of his churches had this report. Some of us like, guys, y'all got to stop. <laughs> y'all got to stop fighting. you got to stop quarreling. you got to stop sinning. you got to stop all this division. It's like, you know, a parent talking to a bunch of kids. you got to spit it up. Let me remind you of what I've been telling you. But this is not the case with the Colossians. He's able to come into the Colossians, to the church of Colossae, and say, Amen. You've heard the gospel of Christ. You've responded to the gospel of Christ. You love one another. Now let's again look to the beauties and riches of Christ. And that's what we get to do in the coming months is to look to the beauties and riches of Christ. They were known for their love for one another. And then verse 5 reveals the how and the why they were able to do this. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. In verse 5, half of verse 5, 
James reminded me this morning I couldn't go into the second half. That's his. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So here we go. Verse 5 reveals the why and how the Colossians are able to live a life of faith and the how and why they're able to love one another so well because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. Now, hope can be a tricky term, right? Because of one of how we use it in our modern day today. A normal person on Mount Hunter's long drive last week to New Orleans would have hoped the Seahawks were going to win. Now, Hunter almost had a biblical understanding of hope driving to uh, New Orleans last week. He had a confident expectation that they were going to win. No, he didn't. He had a realistic expectation that we're just going to have fun. But we use this word hope, right? So flippantly in our life. I hope my team wins. I hope this happens. I hope I get a raise. I hope I get this. I hope, you know, my kid gets on this team. I hope we hope these flippant things. It's almost just like rolling the dice. I hope some circumstance comes about in my life. But it is not the biblical understanding of hope that we see in Scripture. Although that's how we use it today. Even in the Bible, sometimes it can be a little bit um, not confusing, but we've got to understand the proper way in which we're, we're using it in Scripture. If you go to 1 Corinthians 13, 13, let's just go there real quick. We've got a couple minutes. Go to 1 Corinthians. Because what we see in, uh, in Scripture, especially in Paul's writing, you see this, uh, these three words used often, faith, hope, and love. And they're used usually in that, in that, um, in that order. This kind of trinity of words. Faith, hope, and love. That's why they're used in 1 Corinthians. Sometimes they're used like we see in Colossians. Faith, love, and hope. I believe it's 1 Corinthians. I did not write this reference. There we go. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And 1 Corinthians 13, most of us are familiar with this beautiful passage on love and what it looks like. And then you get down to the end. There it says, Now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. And we say, well, how's, how's, how's love the greatest of these? How's love comparatively greater than hope and greater than faith? And, and we've walked through this, and we know that, that our, our faith is fulfilled and our hope is fulfilled whenever, whenever He comes, whenever Christ comes, and we understand that. But what the way Paul uses hope here is a little bit different in the sense that it is this noun. It's not this, this confident expectation. It's not us looking forward to something. It is that which we look forward to. It is the object of our hope. In both Testaments, the nouns expressing concepts of hope can refer to the act of hope, which we normally use, or the hoped-for object. And so what Colossians 2 here, for, what Colossians 1 is, it is the hoped for object. It is what we're hoping for. It is what believers are looking forward to. And that which we're looking forward to is laid up in heaven. Our treasure is laid up in heaven. Our streets of gold and our big mansions and all of our costly arrays are laid up in heaven just waiting for us. Right? That is not our treasure. Go with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So we're born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this hope that we are are being born again into, this living hope, this, this living hope that we're being born again to because the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this confident expectation, this object that we, our life is set on, not that we're just hoping it's going to happen. Not that we're just rolling the dice on. Not that we're hedging our bets on. But that our very fiber of our very being believes in. That every molecule, and the only reason we do so is because of the gift of faith that God has given us, is in Christ. And to make it a little more clear, go with me to Titus. We don't go to Titus very often. There's this passage in Titus I want us to see that just is so beautiful. Titus chapter 2. Starting in verse 11 there. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope so we're waiting on hope so it's not just something that we have presently it's something we're waiting on we're waiting on the object of our hope we're waiting on hope the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior jesus christ who gave himself uh, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. So when you when you put that in your mind, when you think about that hope that we have, we think about the object of our hope, it is Christ. And so how do we how do we have it? How does this change? It changes everything. Whenever we are reminded that that Christ is our great treasure and that He is laid up in heaven for us and not just laid up in heaven for us, but He's also in us and dwells in us richly and is with us every moment of the day, then yes, that spurs us on to having a transformed life with faith. faith. It transforms our life to love one another well. It transforms everything about us whenever we recognize that our hope is Christ. The psalmist says in Psalm 39, 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. So not only do we have hope and do we, as we're about to celebrate Advent here in just a couple of months or less than a couple of months, but our hope, and we don't just wait for Christ. He is our hope. He is the object of our hope. And because of that hope, we're able to love the bride of Christ well. And we're able to be known for our faith. 
And so let us be like this church at Colossae. Let our faith and let our love be heard. Not for our sake, but for the glory of Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for a chance to be together as your people. Thank you for your word this morning in Colossians and for this um, journey that we are in the beginning steps of. So lead us through it, Lord. Help us to see the beauty and the majesty of Christ. Help us to love one another well because you have loved us immeasurably more than we could have ever dreamed of. May your love drastically change everything about us. If there's one here this morning in person or even online who's never by faith looked to Christ in repentance and trusted in Him for the forgiveness of their sins, may by your Spirit you make it clear to them that your invitation is for today. As we sing, Lord, as we come to the communion tables, we have an opportunity to give. As we close this service, and as we leave, may everything we do be for the glory of Christ. In his name we do pray. Amen.